welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics in Cambridge, which looks at geopolitical issues in the historical context with me, Suzanne Rain, and my co-host, Professor Ali Ansari. Today, we're talking about Iran and whether or not there's going to be or is a revolution. And we're joined brilliantly by Dr. Anahita Aryan, who is a recently arrived postdoctoral fellow with us at the Centre for Geopolitics in Cambridge. Uh, Anahita has a PhD in international relations and her focus is on the history and contemporary politics in the Middle East. And she's become, obviously, very involved in and interested in the woman life freedom movement in Iran at the moment. I am expecting that I won't have to say very much more in this podcast because with Ali and Anahita, you're who are such both, a cynic, Suzanne. Both, you're such a cynic. Both great experts on Iran. Um, I am just going to be the catalyst that enables uh, the two of you to to tell us what's going on, and um, and and that's really the first question, which I think I'm going to fire at Anahita, and then Ali will jump in, and and I'm sure we'll have a lively discussion. Is we're all following this on the internet, on Twitter, and 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 the the protest which started as a, a sort of um, a protest in response to persecution of women um, has broken out into something much bigger. And this broad question that, that people are asking is: Is this a revolution? Does it fit the sort of description of what a revolution should be, or is this actually a very modern kind of revolution which doesn't have to fit a pattern uh, in the way that they did? What's your take on what's happening now and how we should interpret it? Thank you, Suzanne. Uh, thank you, uh, Suzanne and Ali, both for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, it's a very important question that you're asking, and I would definitely say that it is a revolution, but not in the classical sense in the way in which people understand revolution. So our understandings of revolutions are very much stuck in classical political theories, in which there is always the idea that there needs to be a leader for a revolution, otherwise it doesn't count as a revolution. But I see this revolution as something that is part and parcel of changes in technology uh, that have their effects again on political mobilization of people in the way in which they basically protest. So it is a revolution and a leaderless one, uh, definitely for now. And I think that is actually also an advantage because if it would have had a leader or have leaders, the first thing that would have happened is that they would have been arrested and this could have taken out the scene. And right now, because it's leaderless, it continues and it continues to galvanize people at the same time. As for the character of the revolution itself, I would say that it has been building up over decades, so to say. So Historically, Iranian people are quite patient people uh, with their political leaders, even though they don't deliver on what they need to deliver. Uh, so we have also seen that during the era of the Shah, there was a lot of dissatisfaction, although this was not always very um, visible to outsiders, so to say, and certain classes in the Iranian society. But nonetheless, that dissatisfaction did exist uh, in the layers of Iranian society and uh, due to a number of uh, factors and conditions and circumstances, it eventually, you know, created a breeding ground for a revolution in which basically the regime of the Shah was toppled. I think uh, currently what we're seeing now with the Islamic Republic is some kind of a repetition of history itself in an ironic way um, over the last four decades. 
There have been a lot of grievances on the side of Iranians politically, economically, socially, culturally, environmentally. Uh, the country has been isolated economically. It's basically on the brink of collapse, uh, one could say. And from a social cultural point of view, what it preaches or what it wants is completely in contradistinction to what the majority of Iranians want. And finally, it's consistent discrimination of women and the way in which it has legalized it and the way in which it continues to pursue a policy of gender apartheid, I think has struck really a raw nerve with many Iranians. So it is not something that is just suddenly happening or erupting. There has been a buildup to it. And over the past spring and summer, that buildup became increasingly more heated since a lot of pensioners and bus drivers and teachers were striking or protesting the economic situation in Iran. And over the last years, for any Iran observer, it's clear that there have been a lot of protests in Iran, but most of them were economically motivated and socially motivated. But I think it was the arrest of Sepide Rashnu over the summer. This is a young Iranian woman who was arrested because she was on a bus not wearing her headscarf. And another religious woman, young woman, started filming her and threatening her that she would send the video to the Islamic Revolutionary Guards to come and arrest her. And Sepide um, well, was not frightened, so she basically... Um, <laughs> verbally uh, espouse a number of profanities. But this woman that filmed her, nonetheless, in violation of laws that are actually instituted in the Islamic Republic itself, nonetheless sent that video to the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards, upon which Sepida was arrested by Iran's Ministry of Intelligence. And days later, I mean, first she was disappeared, so nobody knew where she was. And then days later, she appeared on television, beaten and bruised, uh, delivering a forced confession. That yeah, was I remember that. I remember that. She was quite badly bruised, wasn't she? Exactly. And, and that really, really hit a raw nerve among Iranian women because it was very clear that the current president is actually trying to reinstitute policies uh, of the 1980s in which, again, uh, there is a morality police controlling women in a very inappropriate way. Uh, I mean, it's all inappropriate, but in a very violent way also in terms of their hijab. And video cameras stalled everywhere so that pictures are taken of women and that they get the fines. So women do get fines and warnings. And I think when Sepida was arrested and then that first confession was aired on television and the Iranian women saw it, uh, that was, I think, basically the last drop for them that they start to realize, okay, we are regressing again. Uh, this is a regression. Um, and then uh, after Sefides was released, after paying a very hefty sum of $27,000 for bail, uh, it was at the end of August. And two weeks later, this young Kurdish woman, Masajina Amini, died after having been roughed up and beaten by Iran's morality police. So I think that was literally for women in Iran, the last straw, because it basically meant it can be anybody. It can be you, it can be me, it can be my sister, it can be my cousin. Any woman can experience this and can die as a result of the violence that the morality police deploys when it approaches women in order to comment on their hijab.
It's interesting, Anahita. I'm sorry, Ali. I'm speaking. I know no, no, I that's I fine. That, 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 you're, um, you're, I mean, having said that, you're not going to get a word in edgeways. I shall sit no. back and let you take the lead. Well, no, I, I just want that I was reflecting while you were speaking, Anahita, that um, you said at the start, rightly, that this is a leaderless revolution and it's an advantage not having a leader because if there was a leader, then they could easily suppress an organization by arresting them. But in a, in a way, of course, it has leaders who are these young women who are now dead. So Marsa Amini, or have, I can't pronounce her name properly. Well, not but all of them. Not all, no, not but, all but, dead. But, but it's, it's much harder for the regime to fight her because they've killed her yes. already. Yes, yes, And yes, she's become a figurehead and a, a sort of central point for people in a way that it's much harder to do if you're a leader of a political party that's trying to raise opposition. Um, so I, I put that to you as a, a suggestion. Ali, you may now speak. Thank you. Thank you. It's always very gracious. There's a couple of things I want to say, and I thank you for that, Anahita. I mean, the, the um, you know, the other thing I, you know, and I wonder what you think in addition to what, um, you know, Susanna's asked. I mean, one of the striking things for me is it's not necessarily also, you know, I, I think when people see this as a as a fight over the veil and the hijab, it's actually much more fundamentally about the rights and the rights of women and, and the rights of everyone. Actually, I mean, I think as you were saying, you know, the the, the you know the, the understanding which is which is a reality that women are effectively second class citizens in their own country. So even those women who are supportive of the veil in one way or form are also arguing against you know the way the regime treats them. I mean, I've been very struck by that. A number of them who come from quite religious schools, actually, you know, schoolgirls, actually, but they've also protested very vehemently. And talking to Iranians myself, you know, they've said that while it has been led and sparked really by this very specific, you know, oppression of women, and it's been led by young women as well, it's actually encompassing a much broader range of, you know, Iranian society, all of whom feel very marginalised in a way by the way the regime has operated. Thank you, Ali and Suzanne. Um, just to go back to Suzanne's uh, point of leader, I don't think uh, Mah- uh, Gina was a leader. She's a martyr. She's a martyr that has ignited the revolution, yeah. so to say. And Ali's point, yeah, absolutely. This is not only about a veil. Um, and there have been a lot of women that actually wear the veil that have come out and supported other women. That's right, yeah. Choose not to wear one. This is much more uh, bigger than the veil itself because. It is about uh, women, uh, women's bodies not being uh, securitized and um, that women can feel comfortable in their own bodies without being shamed because this is a part of it, right? Women are being shaped about their bodies and what they look like and that they should not show what, what they look like. Uh, this is about also about women's sexuality in that regard because that also needs to be hidden. It is also about a virginity cult in Iran uh, that has unfortunately prevailed, leading to very bizarre practices, um, as you know, many observers know, in offices of gynecologists in which your virginity is regained back through some kind of a medical uh, procedure in order to prove that you're a virgin. But apart from that, also the right for women to uh, divorce their husbands and also have the right to have custody over their children the right of women in a courts of law to have an equal weight of their testimonies as witnesses instead of being condemned to uh, being a witness whose testimony only counts a half of that man. Yeah, it's only 50%, uh, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and that, that is very uh, ludicrous because it basically means that if you're a rape victim, 
your experience and the abuse that you have undergone and the fact that you have also witnessed it just doesn't count in a court of law. And that means that you have no legal case. And apart from that, there is also, of course, the question in an issue of inheritance rights in which women basically gain half of what their brothers gain, so to say, within the, within the context of family. So it is also about a lot of other legal issues, rights, and laws in which uh, women are structurally placed in a disadvantage by a very misogynist patriarchal system that promotes also a violent masculinity. So Women are not the only victims as well. I mean, obviously they bear the brunt of it, but it's also men that are victims of this system, so to say, because the system promotes uh, a masculinity in which the honor and self-confidence of a man depends upon a woman and how the woman in question behaves herself. So that's, that, that is. That's a really, I mean, that's a really good point, actually. And I, I'm really glad you've highlighted that because I, I think it's something that people don't really fully uh, fully appreciate, actually. And when you were talking, Anahita, then I was thinking about um, a generational question because we've seen a lot of the um, a lot of the people protesting in the videos are young women or even schoolgirls. There's an assumption that can be made that you may well say is wrong uh, that the older women are more conservative and the younger ones are more liberal. Is that the case or is this actually now something that the sort of protest or the anger, or the grievances spans all generations or is it an intergenerational conflict? Um, I don't think it's an, an intergenerational conflict at all. Uh, what I think is that Gen Z didn't experience what their mothers experienced during the 1970s and 1980s and that was a brutal period, particularly the 1980s. The fear that has gotten into their bodies and vibers literally prevents these people from coming out into the streets because the level of violence to which they were exposed and Iranian society just in general has left its traumatic marks, so to say. And the advantage in a way is that the reason why these uprisings are right now so intense is the fact that this generation actually doesn't know anything about what happened exactly in the 1980s and didn't experience it. And as a result of which, they're not afraid. And this is a very important issue because fear matters here. I have spoken to women that are over the age of 50 or 55. So these were young women in the 1980s and they, they saw what happened in Iran how many uh, political dissidents were assassinated and killed, murdered, tortured, whose bodies disappeared, whose bodies were never returned to their families, how many people went into exile from uh, political dissidents in Iran. So, I mean, having had that experience, and then on top of that, an ongoing war for eight years really affects a person's psyche and levels of courage, so to say. So they saw death, destruction, blood, Unjustice, and it is not that they agree with this regime, but they're literally depleted of the energy that the young generation has, and the young generation has that courage because, fortunately, they didn't see those things. But the other thing that's also, I think, quite interesting is the power of ideas. I mean, here's a young generation, as you say, you have no memory or you know sense of experience of that sort of brutal early period, and yet also sort of subject to a certain amount of state indoctrination, all which clearly hasn't worked. 
um, but then have come through again, you know, 10 or 15 years after the Green Movement, really energised by this sort of political ideas about rights. It's very striking. I mean, this is a generation, if we accept the figures that they say the average age or the, you know, the average age of those being arrested is under 20, you know, sort of like 15, 16, 17. All of these are being powerfully motivated by these ideas that, you know, maybe we can say ultimately are, you know, very fundamental ideas about human and civil rights. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I think the difference is with this generation, I mean, uh, we need to also include here the factor of technology. Through social media, they are living in a virtual world already relatively freely, right? Uh, in a sense that they can express what they think, they can wear what they want and take pictures. But that virtual world does not correspond to their physical and daily realities. And I think uh, this discrepancy between the virtual and, uh, and, and the real, so to say, is something that in which um, it creates a lot of dissatisfaction. But apart from that, they see how people live in the rest of the world. And that people live in freedom, that girls and boys their own age, you know, go out together, go to the cinema, kiss in public, hold hands, you know, all of those things that any normal teenager needs to be able to do. Um, that there is no shame about it, that there that it's not scandalous to do so. Um, that they can wear what they want, dance, be happy, laugh, enjoy themselves. Uh, but Unfortunately, they're imprisoned in a system in which all of these normal things are turned into something that is uh, a violation of the law, whereas it's part of normal life. So, I mean, from a psychological point of view, or if there was a psychologist to analyze Iran, it would definitely say that this is an absolutely abnormal state of, of a demand for a person to live because Anything that they're demanding goes against what is natural to a human being, particularly at that age, but also in, in the later stages of life. So it's a deeply psychologically troubled society. Can I ask a question then about um, not what they're protesting against, but what they're protesting for? And this hopefully will bring us into a, a more complicated um, conversation about the role of the West or the, the role of the West as an idea or the role of freedom as an, an idea, because if we've established that it's a leaderless revolution, then it, it doesn't have, or maybe it does, you're going to tell me it does, um, a sort of set vision of how the state will reform, other than that it won't be like the state that it is now, other than we'll be free to do what we like. But that builds in, doesn't it, a, a sort of projected future problem, because you haven't done the working out of what the state should be like in the future. Can I just come in there very quickly? Yeah. There's a couple of things that I think are very you know, very important here because you say leaderless revolution. But I find that quite interesting because what we're saying is there's not a yeah. single leader or not a, a couple, of, you know. And there may be, and I and correct me if I'm wrong, Anahita, but we're sort of saying that actually what we have are multiple uh, centres of sort of leadership, often at a lower level. Um, I think because, as Anahita quite rightly said, you know, the power of technology, social media, the virtual world, there are all sorts of spaces that we can't see into, by the way. I mean, that, that's another thing. So there's things going on that we won't really see into that. And I think historically, I'll just say this. I mean, historically, very few political movements have a very clear and well-defined idea of exactly what they want from day one. They know what they're fighting against. They probably have a broader idea of what they want. 
But those sort of definitions have yet to be made. Although I would argue, by the way, knowing what I know about Iranian youth and their level of political engagement, that they have a fairly clear idea of the direction of travel they want to go. Whether they get there is another matter. But, you know, I have always been very impressed by the the sort of student body, in a sense, the the educated um, youth in Iran about how well connected they are and understand, you know, political ideas. But I'll, I'll stop there because I know Suzanne's going to tell me no, off. No, I'm not. I, but, but the question, I still, because I'm still trying to work out what it is they want. Yeah. And is it possible to conflate uh, a suggestion of what they want with an ideal that they, they want something Western? Or are, do they want something that is specifically Iranian, but just very different to what they've got at the moment? If I may uh, interject here, I think it's a fallacy to call freedom and liberalism as something that is intrinsically Western. And the problem actually starts with those assumptions. I don't think the West has a prerogative on the idea of freedom and liberalism even though, uh, you know, some philosophers have basically written about those ideas. But the West is not the only part of the world historically that has written but about But it's, it's accused, the reason I'm asking it, Annie, is because the West is accused of seeking to export it to Iran. So that's the bit where I'm trying to sort of um, understand. Um, yeah. Of course, that it's always a political convenient mm. uh, escape route for the Islamic Republic just in order to ignore the fact that uh, of its own failings. So, and I don't think any Iranian buys that <laughs> or buys into Entirely it. Entirely agree. Entirely agree with that. They're, they're really well aware that these policies and the isolation in which Iran finds itself uh, economically, internationally, politically are all the result of the Islamic Republic's own choices. Um, so they they are accountable for that. And Iranians also don't believe that it's only the West that has a prerogative on the ideas of freedom or liberalism. Uh, there are other parts of the world that have written about this in the past as well, including in the Islamic world. So um, I think we can take that angle out. It's not per se something Western. Um, and, and at the end of the day, uh, the West has not instigated or um, there's no machination from the West in order to you know, support an uprising against the Islamic Republic. I think governments within the West are quite indifferent. They, um, they don't really care as much. Um, it is mostly that their own public is forcing them to care about it because people uh, and citizens in European countries are basically lobbying their own governments or putting pressures upon them to express uh, support for the Iranian protesters. As for the demands of the protesters, I think they are very clear. The demand is, well, freedom to begin with, freedom of expression, freedom to to dress the way in which you want, uh, freedom as a woman to sing, freedom as any human being to uh, decide for yourself without the um, uh, the state apparatus breathing down, breathing down your neck. Another demand is reform, complete reform, democratic reform of the country, not per se the political system itself, but the country. So I see here a difference because the political system, I'm not sure what it can deliver any longer any form of reform, since there are political factions within that system that have stubbornly uh, basically prevented any sort of reform. Uh, and I think for Iranians, and this goes back to their long enduring patience until they're not, um, have long waited to see whether those reforms would come through, you know, internally from within the system itself. 
And they're now disillusionized because they see that at every step of the way, um, uh, somebody's put into power, you know, so to say, as a president in order to ameliorate those demands and the situation. So it, it is a cat and mouse game that is being rep uh, played repetitively. And I think people are just fed, uh, tired of it. They're fed up. Uh, they don't, they don't have any idle hopes anymore that the Islamic Republic will deliver because they know there are a number of factions that will always prevent it and prefer to clinch on power and, and continue to do so. So I think the reform of the Islamic Republic is a hard sell, uh, towards the Iranians. But what Iranians definitely want is a democratic reform of the country itself and a country that is secular in nature. I don't yeah. think that, uh, that if this, revolution succeeds, uh, Iranians would ever want to have a cleric in power. And uh, as bitter as this experience of the last four decades has been, from a historical point of view, at least, you know, this appeal towards Islam and religion as the panacea of all of Iran's problems uh, has flown out of the window. And everybody knows now that this ideology so basically basically iranians have become inoculated against uh um, you know they now realize well, I mean, in a sense this is not what they want it, this is not what they want but also the the sad part about it is i mean uh, this is not a revolution against islam uh, remember at the end of the day iranians are religious people and um they do believe in god the majority of them you don't you don't see many atheists in iran um uh, but what it has done is that they know that the combination of politics and religion just doesn't work. It, it doesn't lead to anything substantial because Islam had always been presented by, by, you know, uh, these people as the solution to all of Iran's problems. And clearly it has not been the solution to all of Iran's problems. It has in fact exacerbated Iran's problems because of the way in which they have basically appropriated religion to legitimize their own political rule. I mean, I, I think that's an important point. I mean, if I, an important point just to stress that when we talk about secularism in Iran, we're really talking about the separation of church and state, if I can put it that way. So it's a very sort of Atlanticist view of secularism. Mm -hmm. It's not a French view of secularism in the sense. We're not talking about laicism. And uh, it's true that I think Iranians on the whole can have a, I think the way to describe it is in a sense, a lot of spirituality and interested in various sort of religious ideas. What they don't want is the state to have a role in sort of uh, forcing religion or a particular interpretation, I should say, of religion upon them. They're not interested in that. Um, and, and I think that's quite interesting. I mean, it's an interesting point because I think, again, people have yes. argued that this is an anti-Muslim uh, movement in many ways. There are many people in Iran who say, no, when you separate politics and religion, you are protecting religion. You know, you are removing politics from religion. Because you see what they say, Suzanne, and I used to talk to Iranians a lot about this, and they say, you know, we started this revolution with the view that we were going to make politics ethical. Instead, what we've done is we've made religion political. And by making religion political, we've ruined it. Do you see what I mean? So, so what they what they actually do is they follow the Americans. You know, they sort of say, "Look, the Americans have got it right." Loads of people go to church in America. I mean, I'm not sure America is the great model that they look at it, but you know what I mean. That's you know, in the heyday of the reform movement, that's what they used to say. They used to be quoting De Tocqueville and uh, you know, democracy in America and this sort of thing. But it is an important distinction, and I, I, I wouldn't want our listeners, as Anna Heater says, I wouldn't want our listeners to think that when we talk about secularism, we're talking about basically a very sort of Anglo-American view of what, you know, it's a separation of 
the church and state in a way. I would even more say like it's more the German variety of it. So you can always have political parties inspired like you have in Germany by Christianity and by the ethics of a religion, but that the state doesn't control how religion itself is practiced, how religion itself needs to be interpreted. And, uh, and that that is a private matter and a matter for, for religious men and religious people to decide upon. And that the laws of the state are not based upon the interpretation of, of a self-assigned religious authority, which is basically the case in Iran, uh, of how, of what kind of laws need to be basically, um, instituted, particularly when it comes to women. So I think when I when I talk about secularism, I'm thinking mostly. I mean, I, I am a, a product of uh, of, uh, of North Europe, uh, so I'm thinking mostly about religion as part of your private realm or as part of a community in which you share it and practice it with, but not as part of the realm of the state to decide upon it. So I think Germany is a case and example where you still have. Some, you know, religious ethics influencing uh, the ideas of politicians, uh, for example, also with Merkel, her the fact that she basically allowed so many people to come into Germany during that uh, refugee crisis was not only a cold calculation of uh, laborers that Germany needs for its economy, but there was also certain ethics to it. And I think this is fine. And this is probably the at least it seems to me something that Iranians would be more comfortable with uh whereas the french model is it's way too extreme uh it's uh, it, it's also an extremity can on i the other. ask a practical question then because you've both spoken really convincingly on this point and it's it's really interesting one is how how you separate uh religion and politics when they've become so enmeshed and i was reflecting again and there was some very powerful videos on the internet of of clerics challenging women you know in the streets and i wonder how you think it is possible if the two are separated don't you still have an issue that the the people who constitute the religious authorities even if you take them out of the politics you've still got the problem that that they are essentially cast at the moment in opposition to the people. So how will that work in the future? How do you how do you rehabilitate the Ayatollahs if your aim is to remove them from political power? Well, personally, I don't think that um the point is about rehabilitating the Ayatollahs. The first point, I mean, they they uh unfortunately th- th- here's another factor to that. It's not as if all clerics in Iran mm-hmm. agree on the same thing. There's lots also a lot of different types of ideas. So there are those that also actually have opposed the policies of the Islamic Republic, its own, uh, and, and particularly its hardcore factions and the way in which they have interpreted religion or in the name of religion are implementing policies that basically contradict entirely religion itself. And they have also been silenced. And, and some of these uh, clerics are pretty high profile and, and based in Qom, so Iran's Vatican City. So it's not as if there is a monolith of, uh, or, or, or a unified understanding of how Islam needs to be explained or religion itself. There's actually a lot of diversity there. But is that manifesting itself now in the sense that, um, you know, there are some factions who are saying, 
actually we need to listen to the people on this one and then there are others that that aren't or or or, or do we simply not really are we not able to see those conversations you absolutely see it there have been numerous clerics that have come out and say look uh, you need to listen to the people um, and what has been done uh, has been wrong and it needs to be corrected. Um, but the first thing that happens to them is that they're, they're, they're being arrested um, and silenced. So the problem right now in Iran is not the problem of clerics not speaking out or even uh, people that are part of the system, so to say, that are speaking out and saying like, look, there have been many, so, uh, such as the Larijani family has come out and said, hey, there actually, you know, there is a point that people are making or, I mean, former reformists to a certain extent, even though they're also trying to, you know, maybe save their skin or maybe have been forced to walk the tight line of the regime in order to say there is nothing else possible except for the Islamic Republic. But also, uh, for example, the Friday uh, uh, uh prayer uh, imam in Zahedan who has actually called out a referendum about the Islamic Republic. And then, so what you see is that there, there are kind of like cracks within and not everybody agrees with the way in which um, the government, so to say, or the regime, I would say, um, so Raisi, um, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and his uh, acolytes respond uh, to, to the protest. Um, because yeah, you can kill and kill and kill, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the dissatisfaction with I mean, the policies that, that have been will disappear. I mean, yeah, there's sort of less, I mean, you know, back in 2009, there were some very senior clerics who came out and very outspoken in criticism of what was going on. And of course, you know, quite a few of those have died off. Some have been arrested, some have been marginalized, but it's absolutely right. You know, there are still voices there they're you know have less accessibility in some ways but the most striking one has been the friday prayer leader of zahedan albeit of course that he's a sunni and he's also fighting to defend you know the really quite brutal treatment of the people in baluchistan i mean some of the highest casualties have been there but i think what's very interesting is what he has said as anahita said he's actually called for a referendum now that that's something that i think will gain some traction i mean obviously the regime isn't going to tolerate it but the fact is, I think a lot of people will have sympathy for that view. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's it's a way out of this uh, morass for some of them. But um, certainly, I think there are cracks there. And I, you know, one of the things that we haven't mentioned is actually a whole uh, range of uh, public figures from the art and sports world. I have to say, have been very strikingly supportive on this time round, which they weren't really last time round. And now they're very, very voluble and are using social media, I think, to great effect. Anahita, you have done some research or you've got lots of wonderful um, posters which have been produced by people who are part of the protest movement at the moment. I wonder whether you could say a bit about that. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, also just to pick up on what Ali mentioned, yes, there have been also a lot of uh, figures, public figures, uh, celebrities um, uh, that, that have come out and, uh, and supported you know, the protest. But to me, it also makes sense in, in a sense that it's also about their country and the society in which they're living and they're seeing the poverty, the extreme stress that is put upon the people. So Iran is not a happy place to go. And many that have traveled in the last two years to Iran have seen it with their own eyes. And the first thing everyone says is like, 
it's so depressing. It's absolutely depressing. There is no future. There is no hope. There, there seems to be no way out. So I think they, everybody in Iran is well aware, like that a tipping point has been reached. And then this is also reflected then the, the, the protests and the artwork that has been produced. And this, and this has been absolutely brilliant, I think, because, um, various graphic illustrators and artists have uh made various illustrations um so i mean online so to say so they are spreading uh digitally um they're being disseminated and circulated posters of uh of gina basically uh appearing um out of the fist screaming or posters of a woman that is screaming and her ha- hair is like red and fiery uh in the shape of Iran, um, or posters that basically commemorate those martyrs like Nika and Gina. And so this has been in the online environment, but also in Iran itself. People have also been performing art, like in demonstrations, sitting down, because there is a there there was a protester who was uh, basically bound up to a pole with uh with and and in front of him just a glass of water was placed, which he couldn't reach in a position sitting on the ground. Yeah, it, it was horrifying uh, what they did. It was on purpose. And so people, when they were out demonstrating, have taken these positions, like literally performing that position as a way of protesting the way in which the the regime has been responding to, to, the, to the protesters. And even some football players on the football field performed this physically by sitting down putting their hands behind their backs and somebody putting a glass of water in front of them. So there has been that element of performative art in Iran itself. Also visually, basically all kinds of uh, art uh, and uh, graffiti on walls in Iran of the martyrs, but also basically tearing down or putting graffiti on illustrations of the leaders of, uh, of the so-called leaders of the Islamic revolution. So you see, a lot of things are happening on that cultural front. So th- this is just like the illustrative uh, art on the murals in Iran, performative art, visual art, with all the intention to basically uh, communicate and symbolize what they are fighting for, um, and uh, and basically um, etching that into the memory of people because this is really really important. Through that art, a memory is created and a very visible one of the protest itself. And this is just the illustrations. And then on the front of music and poetry, you have also an outburst of creativity there uh, in which various revolutionary anthems and songs have been written. Uh, uh, I mean, one that I personally uh, like a lot is basically the, uh, the, the Italian Bella Ciao, which was basically... Uh, uh, a song uh, that was sung by partisans against fascism in Italy and, and Nazism. And two Iranian sisters have taken this song, have turned it uh, into an Iranian version, but still singing the Bella Ciao and have, uh, have reproduced it. It's very revolutionary. And of course, you have this other song, Baroya, which is uh, so four by uh, Shervin Hajipur that basically literally says why people are protesting. So to your question of why people are protesting, I think that song basically sums it up. But more interestingly also is basically the return 
of a revolutionary anthem of the early 1980s, and that is Yare Daba Sonia Man, which basically translated as my uh, my school friend or my great school friend, so to say. And it has been Iran's resistance anthem uh, par excellence. And this anthem was part of a movie that was uh, produced uh, by Mansour Tehrani uh, for his uh, 1980 political drama, From Cry to Terror. And it's about three uh, school friends uh, that meet each other later in life and what has happened to them. But this song revived during the uh, presidency of Khatami, so uh, in the 1990s, and particularly after the uh, bloody student uprisings of 1999. And then again in the 2009 elections, uh, the song was again passionately sung by demonstrators on the streets. Uh, and now again, it's it's back, so to say. Uh, and it's again being sung by Iranians on the street while protesting uh, in Iran and abroad again. So this song itself is also very interesting. Again, it's a cultural product of the 1980s, but it still is car- being carried on uh, by a new generation that actually wasn't there to hear that song by Gen Z that is now purchasing. So also on a musical front, there's been a lot of uh, products, so to, products, so to say, revolutionary products and anthems. And this in turn also absolutely galvanizes people because music basically inspires people. I mean, this is something that we all know, but then if it's also revolutionary and it's about a cause of fighting for freedom, then mm-hmm. You know, everybody basically feel energized or, or or feels the necessity and need to carry on uh, the uh, the fight, so to say. Yes, and it actually gives courage, doesn't it? Music, um, interestingly. Ali, we need to wrap it up. Do you want to have a final say? No, I think that was that was uh, uh, really excellent. What a tour de force, Anahita. Uh, I can I can sense uh, your uh, your becoming back. Uh, to add to this, as we as we follow this intently and see what happens, I think in the uh, next weeks and months in Iran. I mean, as I've said, I think previously, I think this is a process, and it's a process that will take some time, and we just have to see how it unfolds. But it's certainly true, I think, that um, there is something distinctive, there is something different, and there is something I think that really indicates that we have turned a corner. I think in the history of the Islamic Republic with what's been happening. So um, you know, we'll we'll keep an eye on things, and I hope you'll come back and join us at a at a later date, Anahita. Um, yes, thank you. I would love to. Yes, and, and yeah, just uh, some final words. I completely agree with Ali. I mean, this is an undecided situation right now. We don't know uh, what will happen and how things will further proceed. But I do think that there is no way back to what was before this. And I think the Islamic Republic or particularly those hardcore hardline factions are aware of that. And it does scare them, I think, (laughs) that they know that they can't go back to what it was before. But this is at least something that is certain. Apart from that, time will only tell. uh, And I would love to come back again. and, uh, And thank you for having me. Thank you both. And there's no way back. That's true on so many things but uh, it's something to leave our listeners with as we sign off and say we'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks time bye. thank bye. you bye bye